0: Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we have such a Savior as Christ. And the things that the hymn writer wrote here and that we just sung about, God, how grateful we are that we have so often found those things to be true. And God, we pray that though the effort of our heart is weak and our thoughts are cold that you would stir us, God, and help us to look to him and to hope in him. Father, we lift up Scott and his family as they mourn the loss of his mother. And God, we pray that you would comfort them. God, we pray that you would um, help them as they have opportunities for gospel conversations around the gathering of family for for this time and the funeral and days to come. God, we pray that You would give them boldness and wisdom. And God, that You would give weight to their words. I pray for the folks who will help with the booth on Saturday as they seek to have gospel conversations. God, we pray that You would interrupt people as they gather for completely different reasons than having gospel conversations, God, would You stop some in their tracks? Not just physically, but God, spiritually, would You open eyes and deaf ears and dead hearts to believe the gospel, to turn to Christ, and to see Him as He is? We pray for those who will have opportunity to speak and ask again, God, that You would give them words. God, help them to know how to answer and what to say and what not to say. Father, we are grateful that you give us times like these when we can speak to others and we ask, God, that you help us to be more aware of the opportunities around us. God, we are grateful that you also work through the everyday interactions that we have and the, the lives that we live, and God, we want to be mindful that throughout the day, every day, that we live unto Christ, that our hearts be taken up with Him, that the things we say and the way we respond all be constrained by love to Him, God help us as we continue now to look into Philippians. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1. I'm going to read from verse 12 down through verse 26. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ... "...has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. And the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel." The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, and yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again." Well, tonight, I want to try to just look at the very first part of verse 21. For To me, to live is Christ. Um, and as we look at that, I want to first point out the little word for. And just note it, that what he's saying now is connected to what he's already said. That is what I would call a connecting word. And So when you see that, he's linking an idea to an idea that he's already expressed. So when he says for me to live is Christ, he's not starting something completely new and you know removed from everything that he's already said, but instead in this whole idea that he's expressed from verse 12 through verse 20, this is tied to that. And in fact, I think could even be seen as something of the motive For the way that he views life and the way that he interacts with with all these things that are happening to him. You remember we've seen that he has circumstances that he's having to deal with. And the circumstances are hard circumstances. I mean no one would look at his circumstances and think Paul's got it made right now. He writes from prison. He's chained to a guard 24 hours a day. He's been in prison at this point at least two years And he will be in prison for a total of four years. He doesn't know whether this will end in life or death or or longer imprisonment or whether he'll be freed. He doesn't know this yet. And so the circumstances aren't great. And he's in jail for preaching the gospel. If you go all the way back to Jerusalem, it's almost a misunderstanding. It's, It's, you know, you could look at his circumstances and think, I should even be here. And yet Paul looks at it and he says to the Philippians who are also concerned for him, I want you to know my circumstances have turned out for the progress of the gospel. It's, it's been a good thing. I would have thought it. Maybe no one else would have thought it. But it has been. It's been a good thing. So terrible circumstances. And yet they've turned out for good. The progress of the gospel. And then we also have seen that there are people that he has to deal with. Not just the guards some of who have come to understand that he's a prisoner because of Christ. But there's also brothers, preachers, who preach from envy with selfish ambition, hoping to cause him distress. And so you could look at that situation. I'm in jail, things are already hard, and here are these guys out here who are supposed to be on my side, who should know better and yet they're preaching hoping to cause me more harm how do you respond to that and paul says i rejoice because even though they're preaching christ from terrible motives they're still preaching christ and so I, I rejoice and then as we saw last week he recognizes that this could end in death it could end in life you know he, he could he could continue to live for a while longer he doesn't know exactly, but whether it, li- whether it results in life or death, he says, I will rejoice, future. And so, you know, terrible circumstances, difficult people, and the stuff that comes with that, life or death, and all of this, Paul's rejoicing. And how is it that he can do that? What is it that, um, that colors his thinking so that he looks at all of these kinds of circumstances, people, life and death, And he doesn't respond like the world responds. Because there are plenty of people, aren't there, who faced all those kinds of things, difficult circumstances, and they haven't rejoiced. You know, failed by people you thought were your friends, and that doesn't go over well. Life or death, and you crumble. And yet, Paul doesn't. And he says very succinctly in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ. There's actually not a verb in verse 21. Um, What he says is something like this. To live, Christ. To die, gain. And the verb is supplied to make it read smoother. But to live, Christ. That's it. Christ. Christ. The living that he's talking about, some people have looked at that and they've talked about it in terms of eternal life. And I don't just mean eternal life that, you know, begun now, lived into eternity. But looking forward to like, okay, he's going to die and there's eternal life. But that doesn't really make sense because he's, he's setting life against death. I don't know which one to choose. Well, if he's talking about eternal life and the sense of eternity, then dying is is still eternal life. So that doesn't make sense. The life that he's talking about is life now, here. It's life in prison, chained to a guard. It's life with guys who are preaching, hoping to stir up more trouble. It's life not knowing if Nero's going to call and send you to the executioner. That life, Christ. He is the term that sums up that life. Now, as Paul sets this before us, before he says to live as Christ, we have these three words. For to me. And these are emphatic. He's not talking about everybody, but to Paul. He's explaining himself. To me. To live. Christ. This is not just a a philosophy of life, you know, a way of looking at things. It's not... um, just a set of truths that he's bought into. But there's a person. Christ. That's life. Him. He. Well, it is a succinct statement. A concise statement. And surely there's things that could be said about that. I mean, what, is, what does he mean to say, Life is Christ. What does that look like? How do you fill that out a bit? And I think what you have to do is to look at the other things that Paul has said. You look at the other things he's written, especially things he's written in kind of biographical moments, and you see how he's lived and how he has made other statements that, that kind of color this. And you look at those and you say, okay, yeah, I see. To live is Christ in that regard. And, um, so I want us to do that tonight, and we'll look at just a few things. And uh, the the four things I'm pulling out are actually from a guy named John Stone. The the four headings here, and when Paul speaks about life being Christ, to live is Christ. I believe that I agree with him that life being Christ, Paul means that. L- Life in Christ is a life of faith. To live as Christ is to live a life of faith in Christ. He's not, you know, living on his own resources. He's not living to himself. He's living upon Christ. And he's doing that by faith. Um, there are so many verses that, that kind of speak to this. Um, And the fact that that Christ came to rescue people. And that rescue is by faith. But let me just point to one. And that is Galatians 2.20. There Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself up for me. So here's a life I'm living. And it is Paul's life. It's not Paul has become kind of a, a robot. And Christ's living <clears throat> through him in that regard. But Paul living. The life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith. In the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now. Now. This life that he's living by faith is a life lived upon Christ as the object. It's not just faith in faith or faith in good feelings or whatever else that people kind of talk about faith. But it is faith in Christ. And he kind of fills that out for us. Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So the object of his faith described just in this passage is faith in Christ, the Son of God. Yeah, I'm looking to one who is more than just a good buddy or friend. I'm looking to the one who is very God of very God. The Son of God. I have faith in Him. And faith not just in Him and His person, but in His work as a mediator. The love that He Himself has demonstrated toward me by giving Himself for me. This is, this is the language of sacrifice and of substitution. He took my place. And he became a curse for me so that I wouldn't have to be cursed. He gave himself for me. And so now, knowing that, I live in the flesh by faith in him. Paul did live by faith. Just like all of us must live by faith. Paul was a sinner. Paul was rescued and that rescue included trusting Christ, coming to him by faith. We see something of the shift that takes place in him in Romans chapter seven, where he writes there and says, what shall we say then is the law sin? May it never be on the contrary. I would not have come to no sin except to the law. For I would not have known about coveting, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Here's Paul living what he thought was a good life according to you know this, this religion that he had and, and a brilliant man. But then the law comes and it slays him. The commandment comes and he didn't realize he was covetous. the law speaks to him and he realizes he is so covetous and it wrecks him. He needs a savior. He writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 and says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. So he saw not only his sin, but Christ comes to him and he sees the Savior and he loves him. He believes him. And now the life that he lives is a life lived by faith. And not just faith for eternity, but faith for living now. Faith for the jail cell. Faith for facing Nero and whatever else he must face. To me, to live is Christ. It's a life of faith in him. But not just a life of faith in him, but if we believe him, if we have with eyes of faith seen him then there's also love for Christ so faith in Christ but life also a life of love for Christ Peter writes in 1 Peter 1:8 and I know this is Peter not Paul but certainly this applies to Paul doesn't it listen though you have not seen him you love him and though you do not see him now but believe in him you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible And full of glory. When we believe in him. You greatly rejoice. And it's not just that we know joy. But it's joy in him. There's a love for him. It's resulted in. Our desires reaching out toward him. When we by faith see Christ. The object of our faith. And we see his perfections. We cannot help but say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. I mean, he is the the pearl of great price, right? And we've found him to be that and willingly sold everything else that we might have him. So we find in Christ infinite worth. We find in him one worthy of our faith. We find him to be, as the, uh, in the Song of Solomon, altogether lovely. And that description really doesn't fit anyone else but him. Altogether lovely. No imperfections. Every part of him, lovely. Um, I know it's been mentioned here before at some point. You know, There are people that you get to know and maybe you're impressed with them. And the more you get to know them, the more you start to see their faults. And maybe there's still parts that are impressive, but there are also faults. I was thinking about um, uh, even, you know, like looks. I I saw, it's been several months ago now, you know what a time-lapse photo is? Like if we took a time-lapse photo of today, you know, it'd be the entire day kind of Condensed into a few seconds. And so you could see the sun traveling across the sky in this time-lapse photo. That kind of idea. I saw this time-lapse photo of Michael Jackson and of the mutations, permutations, what would be the word, of his face as he went through the various surgeries. And so I was thinking about how um, even people who... Uh, um, you know the world might look at it and think that is an attractive person. They look at themselves and start to see my nose is a little big or my ears are big or whatever you know and there's these they go through surgeries and try to fix whatever to the point perhaps of not even looking like themselves later um, but but that's kind of looking at yourself you can you know other people you you see um some impressive thing i could say about a person but then the more you get to know most people the more you start to see the cracks and the fissures but we look at christ and there are no imperfections there aren't there's, there's nothing to to stop us and make us think yeah but you know but there's that there's none of that it's all perfect it's all wonderful and how much more so now in a glorified body seated at the right hand of the Father. All His work completed so that He has sat down. He's perfect. And the more we look, the more we find of perfection, not imperfection. The more we look, the more we can be enthralled with Him and impressed with Him, not unimpressed. We don't start to, you know, to see weaknesses because there are none. So Paul has looked. He has seen Christ and seeing Him. He finds Him lovely. And he loves Him. I don't think that there's any particular statement in the New Testament where Paul describes how much he loves Jesus. Let me tell you about how much I love Jesus. You don't find that. But you do see other things that he says. And you see how he lives. And how can you come to any other conclusion? But here's a man who loves Christ. As to a couple, of the statements, a couple of statements that he makes uh, from Second Corinthians. One is in chapter 5 and verse 9, which we've, we've looked at a few times. There, though, he says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent. So whether here or in heaven, wherever, the ambition is this, to please him. That's what I want. I want to please him. Well, That's the language of love, isn't it? I love him and loving him. I want to please him. Whether I'm there or here doesn't matter. Whether I am you know, in, in the perfections of heaven in a sinless body or whether I'm here now presently having to deal with temptation and sin and people who are trying to kill me or hurt me doesn't matter. My goal, my ambition is simple. It's to please him, to live Christ And then you think about this verse just a few verses later in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. The love of Christ controls us. I've been captured by this love. Captivated by it. Having concluded this that one died for all, therefore all died. But I'm in this grip of Love. Love delights to please its object. We want to please those we love. It's, it's not, you know, it's, it's an equation that doesn't make sense to say, I love this person. I don't care what they think. I love this person. I, I don't care if I hurt them or not. That's not an equation that makes any kind of sense. Love delights To please its object. In the language of 1 Corinthians 13, love endures all things. Love bears all things. What's Paul doing right now because of love to Christ? He's enduring, he's bearing. Whether by life or death, I know Christ will be exalted. I rejoice. He's being preached. I will rejoice. Henry Skugel, in his little book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, writes about the love of God and he defines it this way. And he's not talking about God's love for us, but our love for Him. The love of God, he says, is a delightful and affectionate sense of the divine perfections, which makes the soul resign and sacrifice itself wholly unto Him, desiring above all things to please Him, and delighting in nothing so much as in fellowship and communion with Him, and being ready to do or suffer anything for His sake or at His pleasure. Because the soul loves God, The soul is ready to resign itself to him. Wanting to please him. Wanting fellowship with him. Wanting, ready, willing to suffer anything for him. Well, let me remind you one more time of what Paul has said. Verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Verse 20, I will not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. Why does Paul keep preaching the gospel when it results so often in beatings or being run out of town? You know, stoned and left for dead. There's that whole list of things that he's endured. Why does he continue to endure it? He loves Christ. He loves Christ. Well, this life lived to Christ is a life of faith. It's a life of love. It's also a life of fellowship with Christ. Paul doesn't see Christ as someone worthy of love, but, you know, Jesus doesn't know who Paul is. Kind of that idea. You know, you see someone, you admire them, you want to know them, you're not even on their radar. That's not it at all. Why does Paul love Jesus? Why does anyone love Jesus? Because he first loved us. Jesus loves Paul. Paul loves Jesus. And there is a fellowship that's enjoyed between them. And between every Christian. Available to every Christian. We get to have fellowship and communion with the living Lord. And so this life to live as Christ. Is also a life of fellowship with Him. We understand the... the desire to to be around those that we love we enjoy their company we enjoy being with them when I was 20ish if I had had the money which I probably didn't but if I had the money I would have gladly driven two hours round trip to see Elizabeth for 10 minutes I and Many of you probably would have done something like that also. You want to be around the people that you love. And when your heart is captivated by someone, you want to be with them. There is no real fellowship, there's no real joy apart from a life enthralled with Him. Every other fellowship eventually falls flat. Every other joy eventually comes to an end. But there is a real and enduring joy and fellowship that lasts eternally with Him as we walk with Him. Let me quote Skugel one more time. Never does a soul know what solid joy and substantial pleasure is till... Once being weary of itself, it renounces all propriety, gives itself up to the author of its being, and feels itself become a hallowed and devoted thing, and can say from an inward sense and feeling, my beloved is mine, and I am his. I am content to be anything for him, and care not for myself, but that I may serve him. I believe Paul had found that before (laughs) Schugel. Paul writes in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life. Those words of love and words of fellowship. He has fellowship with the living Lord. Christ is my life. Or Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. Paul writes and says that he is pursuing christ that i may know him now does paul not know christ of course he does but he wants to know him more here's paul not not at a young age but at an older age here's paul after some years in missionary service and walking with the lord paul again in jail and all of that from all of that paul says here's what i really want i want to know him more And I'm forgetting everything that's behind that I could pursue him more diligently. But for the joy of knowing him. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. He doesn't say that theoretically he is suffering. Being conformed to his Death. And this fellowship, this communion with Christ is sustained in Paul the same way that it's sustained in us. Paul is not in a different category in that regard. Paul is a man. And Paul prays and reads the Scripture and surely he thinks about the reality of being in union with Christ. A great truth that shows up so many times in his letters. It shows up here in the first chapter of Philippians when he addresses the believers in verse 1. You remember how he addresses them? To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Who are in Philippi. The main thing, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus. you, You happen to be in Philippi. But to you who are united to him. And he brings this subject up so often, surely because it's important, but also, I would think, because it's on his mind, his heart. He thinks about it. Well, to live is Christ. It is a life of faith in Christ. It's a life of love for Christ. A fellowship with Christ. Christ. But it's also a life of service to Christ. Speaking of the introduction here, do you remember how he introduced himself and Timothy in verse 1? Bondservants of Christ Jesus. Slaves of Christ Jesus. That's who we are. And as such... He doesn't complain about being in prison or people who preach from false pretense or possibly even facing an executioner. I'm the bondservant of Christ Jesus. Love made him the willing bondservant of Christ Jesus. It wasn't that he found himself in a position that he hated and wanted to be freed from. He was glad to be the bondservant of Christ Jesus because he's Lord. He's the master. And loving him, there's no better place to be than to be the bondservant of Christ Jesus. Google talks about how when Christ has our love, he has our service. Because he says, because our desires follow after Christ, our thoughts follow after him, our hopes follow after him, our expectations follow after him. We love what he loves. We hate what he hates. And so our lives you know, they come into conformity with Him. They, they fall in line with Him. And we gladly then bring into captivity and obedience every thought. We gladly use our minds to understand Him more and to, to you know, think on Him. We gladly use our memories to try to To put things there to to fill up our minds with that. Our conscience, we want to keep tender. We don't want to to find it getting harder and, and giving excuses for why we can't obey. And then our ears and our eyes and our mouths, our whole being becomes willing servants of Him. We are people whose members are given to righteousness, not unrighteousness. And actually, I'm sorry, that was Thomas Vincent, not Scoogled, who talked about that. Well, Christ had Paul's love, and so Christ had Paul's service. When Jesus came to Paul at his conversion, and Paul was blinded by that light, Jesus spoke to him and said in Acts 22.8, Paul's telling about it, Jesus said, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. Do you remember what Paul says next? What shall I do, Lord? Something takes place in between there. And Paul's response, What shall I do? And Jesus says to him, Get up and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. I got stuff for you to do, and I'll tell you about it. You go. And from that point forward, imperfectly, surely, he's still a man who wrestles with temptation and sin. But from that point forward, Paul's a man on a mission to do what Jesus has appointed for him to do. What shall I do? Do this. And that's what he does. And that's why he can stand before the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 24, and say, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus To testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. That's what he's given me to do. Testify solemnly of the grace of God. And that's what I'm doing. And in that regard, I don't count my life as dear. So he can say in Philippians chapter 1, Whether by life or death, Now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. So yes, I will rejoice. To me, to live is Christ. He had a race to run, a task to finish, and he would not be deterred by life or by death. And that's why he could say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.10, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Or to the Colossian believers in chapter 1 verse 24, I rejoice, I rejoice. In my suffering for your sake and in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Will he draw lines with the Lord? Can you find any that he drew? He wasn't deterred by imprisonment, he's been there more than once, he keeps going. He's not stopped by not only people who talk mean about him, who try to stir up trouble against him, but, but even those who desert him. In chapter 2 of Philippians, he writes to the Philippians, saying, I hope to send Timothy to you. He says, I have no one else of kindred spirit who, genuinely, who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. What a. John was, and I were talking about this yesterday. What an amazing statement. I don't know anybody else I could send to you who'd be concerned for you like I would be except for Timothy. Of all the people he knows. Or in 2 Timothy chapter 1, when he's again in jail, he writes to Timothy and says, you're aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. They've all left me except for Onesiphorus. He often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. But everybody else... Where are they? They've disappeared. Is that too much? Well, listen to what he says to Timothy in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Timothy, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, But according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And then in verse 12, he says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And then chapter 2 and verse 3 Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I mean, just again and again, Timothy, don't stop. Don't stop. Don't be put off. Keep going. Not even the prospect of death shut him up or slowed him down. We've seen it in verses 20 and 21 of Philippians 1 to Timothy, here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought... The good fight, I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Doesn't look like he stopped there. And in Philippians chapter 3. Verse 7-9, through he says, "...whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him." Christ had become His supreme attraction. Love to Christ, faith in Christ, love for Christ, fellowship with Christ, service for Christ. For to me to live is Christ. What is life to you? If you had to fill out that statement and you had a a fill in the blank question for to me to live is. What do you put there? Some of you would have to say Christ really isn't even in my thinking when I think of that statement. It would be something completely different. Because the truth is you don't know Christ. And you don't love Christ. And you need for Him to rescue you even as He did the, the Apostle Paul and so many others here. You need Him to be your Savior. But for others here, how do you fill that out? Perhaps you look at that and and you see a dim reflection. It's dim, it's imperfect, but there is you know the desire that that be there. And maybe there are moments when it's there, but other moments when something else might threaten to s- slide into that slot. You say uh, you know it's it's there, but it's not up to the standard of Paul. And you might even be tempted to say. We aren't, after all, the Apostle Paul. But do remember that Paul, again, is a man. And the gripping thing, really, about this passage shouldn't be Paul's commitment to Christ so much as is the Christ to whom he's committed. The thing is not that Paul has this great resolve and and he, Paul, has, you know, Look to Christ in such a way that he's saying to live as Christ. It is the object to which he has looked. And Christ has gotten a hold of him in such a way that he is able to say that. And so we can't say I'm not Paul and you know, I don't have the mind of Paul or the faith of Paul or the love of Paul or whatever else. We have the Christ of Paul. And we have the same opportunity to look to him as Paul has to fellowship with Him, to believe Him, to love Him, to serve Him. Different ways. You're not in jail. You're not chained to a guard. So there's different ways, different avenues, but still the same Christ to the degree that any of us should be able to say, for to me, if I had to explain it to someone, for to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. And so if you... See a dim reflection here and wish it were more. Understand that the, the, the issue is not that Paul has a, a greater wanter. You know, he wanted it more. He's, it's not that. It is that he has seen more clearly the wonder of Christ. And so the answer is not to buckle down and, and determine to believe and to love and to fellowship and to serve more. And yeah, I'm going to be serious about it now. But the answer really is to look to Jesus, is to see him. Google for the last time. The true way to improve and ennoble our souls is by fixing our love on the divine perfections. That we may have them always before us and derive an impression of them on ourselves. And beholding with open face as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, we may be changed into the same image from glory to glory. If you want to be changed into the image from glory to glory, you've got to behold the image. Look at Him. Savor Him. See His person. See His perfections. And if that's a necessary step of attaining the goal of being able to say with Paul, to me, to live as Christ, then... You have to hate anything that tends to lessen the glory of Christ to you. If things that are otherwise good are a distraction, it may be that you need to stop that for a while so that you are not distracted away from the glory of Christ. You should, you know, put, as it were, a, a, a fence, you know, a little. Rope things don't cross this line. There, you need this rope, this this corded thing around your heart as it looks to Christ. You know, don't don't cross this line. You don't get to step into this space and take this space. It belongs to Him. I've heard a number of times um, Susanna Wesley's statement about sin, and uh, over the years, it's kind of morphed in my mind into something else. And so I looked it up. And what she said was this. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things, that thing is sin to you, however it may seem in itself. Are there things that otherwise are good things that impair the tenderness of your conscience? That obscures your sense of God? That that weakens your reason? That dulls your relish for spiritual things? Surely, Paul was careful to avoid anything like that. And interestingly, it wasn't being chained to a guard, having fellow preachers preach trying to hurt him, or even the threat of execution. Those were things that are in his life by the providence of God, he can't avoid. And God gives him grace to deal with each one of them. Christ has shown himself to be glorious to Paul. And Paul has seen that. So that he can say to me to live is Christ. When Paul says this, just a couple thoughts in closing. When Paul says this, he is not an immature believer. This is not, you know, kind of a... a, grandiose statement of youth or of immaturity and so you look and you think yeah you get a few years on you and then we'll see what you got to say Paul no this is Paul old and wizened having walked with the Lord by faith this is Paul a full grown man of faith if you want to say it that way he's mature and Paul there says listen To me, to live, Christ. Paul is not simple-minded. I mentioned this last week, but it's worth mentioning again. And some of that simple-mindedness could be linked to the idea of immaturity. We were in the vehicle, I don't remember if it was earlier this week or, or the end of last week, explaining something to the kids, trying to explain something to the kids. I thought we did a pretty good job of explaining it. But it was kind of an abstract concept and they weren't quite getting it. And, you know, hopefully they'll grow up and they'll get it. But Paul is not simple minded. It's not that, you know, he just doesn't see the world in complex ways. Paul's not simple minded, but he is single minded. There's Christ and everything else fills out and takes its shape from him. Everything else is understood Through, not rose-colored glasses, but Christ-colored glasses. He sees everything through that lens. It's Christ. One more thing, and that is this. We'll, We'll talk more about this in the next week or so. But when he makes this statement, to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. When choosing between life and death, He considers death the better option. I'm hard pressed, he says in verse 23, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ. for that's very much better. How many people would say just the opposite? To die is Christ, but to live, there's gain. Not Paul. Death is gain. Life is Christ. But even then, we have to be careful because... You know, there are. There, we can get to a place where we might think a person is suffering so much that death is an escape. Death is almost a relief because we think their suffering is ended. And of course, if they're in Christ, it is. If they're not in Christ, it's not the end of suffering; it's the beginning. But I don't believe that that's what Christ. What Paul is saying here, I don't think Paul is saying I'm suffering right now, but. You know, to live, I'm just hanging on by the mercy of Christ. But one day I'm going to die and then I'll escape all the suffering and that will be gained. That's not what he's saying. For to me, to live is Christ. It's faith in Him, love to Him, fellowship with Him, service to Him. And then I die and I get to go and be with Him. And it's even more of that. Surely, as he explains this to the Philippians... He's recommending it to them also. And recommending it to us. Forget everything else that's behind. Press on toward the high prize of the call of God in Christ Jesus. Know Him. Be found in Him. To me, to live. Christ to die gain let's pray Father please press these words on me and on each one of us here God let us not be content to read it to think about it for a few minutes. But because Christ is our life. Because in Him we live and move and have our being. God, we pray that He would help us to be able to say with a growing consciousness, with a, a growing clarity to me to live as Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night.